This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Kwame Kusatsu. I play Admiral Nakamura on Star Trek Next Generation and welcome you all to Trek FM. Theo Greyheart. Welcome, listeners, to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I am your host, Amy Nelson. Joined with me today is Joe Keegan and Justin Ozer. And a couple of dogs. <laughs> Clearly, yes. My dogs have just been yeah. removed from the room, put into quarantine, never to come back. Well, Joe, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm kind of excited and ne- nervous and, yeah, I'm looking forward to my first celebrity interview. That's going to yes. be fun. Yes. And Justin, how are you? Doing great. Yeah, uh, you were away for a couple of weeks, Amy. We missed you. Great to have you back here on Earl Grey. And I think we have a great episode coming up. Yeah, I was gone one last week because I was at the uh, Salt Lake Fan X convention, which is like their Comic-Con, and I was fortunate enough to do a wonderful Star Trek panel with Haley Stoddart, Brandy Jackala, and Zach Fruling, and it was my first panel ever, and so it was really fun. Good. I'm glad it Sounds like it went well. Yeah, it was just really fun. We talked about uh, the diversity in Star Trek and went through each season and talked about how each series was able to bring some diversity. So it was really good. You talked about all the different series? We did. Wow, impressive. <laughs> it was really fast and furious, <laughs> but and we had great audience participation. They were commenting and asking questions, so it was really good. Awesome. Well, definitely looking forward to hearing that. So, very excited listeners. We finally are here to announce the iTunes giveaway winner. And Justin, uh, I'm hoping that you are going to use a random number generator so that it is completely randomized, no favorites here. No, I'm, I'm all ready for that. So thank you again, listeners, for all of the reviews that you put up between July 1st and August 31st for a chance to win some great collectible cards donated by our associate producer, Chris Trebuzio. So we did receive a number of reviews. Thank you, listeners, for that. And now I'll use a random number generator to pick one uh, randomly. So Justin, see do you know what I discovered yes. earlier that um, Alexa... And Amazon Echo can generate um, random numbers if you want. Well, that's pretty interesting. Well, I already generated one from a website here. So so let's see who our winner is. So our winner is Lean D, so L-E-E-N, and then there's a 
a D is an abbreviation for a last name. And uh, they're in the U.S. So if you're listening, please reach out to us and send us your information so we can send you along those collectible cards. And congratulations for winning the contest. Yay! Applause, applause. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much again, all the listeners who gave us a review. They were just wonderful to read. And Lean D, thank you, thank you. You are our winner. Yeah, and I was thinking, I know since we've had this contest going on, it's been a while since we've talked about iTunes reviews, but maybe we can read out all the individual reviews on upcoming episodes of Roll Gray. What do you guys think? That sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Be good. Yeah. All right, great. And when Lean, when you receive your cards, can you check through them? And if you've got any of the ones that I don't <laughs> have, like as duplicates, please get in contact and we will do a swap. Thank you. Oh, I still need to do, you do. that for you, I know, you, I'm Joe. waiting. I'm <laughs> I need waiting. to look through my cards. And I'm still <laughs> refusing to open them. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> You're dead to me, Justin. <laughs> okay, hopefully. In the nicest way possible. Uh, yes. Appreciate it. Well, hey, guys, we have some Babel Conference feedback. Uh, this is from our crossover with Standard Orbit, Earl Grey 289, where we talked about alternate realities. So, Justin, why don't you start us off? Yeah, that was such a fun episode, wasn't it, to have the Standard Orbit crew here and to go on their show? So Kimberly Lawler says, great roundtable. The Standard Orbit crew was wonderful. I particularly liked the discussion on yesterday's Enterprise. It occurred to me that the Marshall Enterprise and a character who's not supposed to be here, Tasha in this case, were echoed a bit in the novel Q Squared, another alternate reality story. And I'll just say here, I agree with that. And that's an amazing novel if people want to check out Q Squared. And I uh, was on Literary Treks doing an episode about that book as well. That is right. So our listeners should go ahead and, and listen to that because, yeah, that was one of the times you're on Literary Treks talking about that novel. Yeah. So Kimberly goes on to say, I agree this episode made good use of Guinan. I appreciated Amy Nelson's observation that Picard, unlike most other Starfleet captains we see, really is set apart from his crew in many ways. And experiences like what we saw in the inner light only deepen that divide. It's kind of sad. I guess it highlights how meaningful the end of all good things is, though, when he finally joins the poker game. It doesn't change everything, but it's a start. Yeah, thanks for all of your observations there, Kimberly. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. And that's just another um, book that I've got to add to my list to read as well. Q Square. Oh, it's really it's good. It's really good. Yeah. It's one of the best I've read, and I've read a couple hundred. <laughs> it's a really, really good one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. David Plummer says, Good show. I always enjoy a crossover episode. Parallels is a favourite that I don't seem to see discussed all that much outside of Trek groups. I was a bit surprised when it came up as an introductory episode, but I guess it makes sense. I always think of it as a treat for long-time fans because of the wealth of fun changes to small details. But it's also a neat story presented straightforwardly enough to enjoy as a newcomer. Either way, it's, a, it's great, and I agree that it's nice to have an episode with lots of Worf just being Worf without worrying about all the latest Klingon Empire crises. It seems like they got a better handle on having him as a central character on Deep Space Nine, but it's good to see it here for once. Yes, David, I totally agree with the whole Klingon Empire crisis. It's really nice that Worf's just got a kind of kind of mission to do to navigate through all these alternate re realities, and there's nothing really about his Klingon it could be could have literally been any one of the other crew members that took part so thanks for your comment again yeah I have to agree I don't hear parallels talked a lot outside of you know us talking about it because for me it's a go-to episode if anyone says well what should I start with or what do I what should I watch I'm always like watch parallels I just I love it so yeah definitely 
Well, Matthew Bell says the best bit about the standard orbit Earl Grey crossovers is that the discussion lasts twice as long. Something touched on by Amy and then answered by Joe was how the whole alternate timeline was supposed to work in yesterday's Enterprise. It was a fair point because under the rules of time travel established in the show, changes to the timeline only occur when someone from a future time deliberately makes changes to the past. Therefore, the Enterprise C traveling 22 years into its future shouldn't have affected anything because the wormhole was a natural result of actions in the year 2344. The Federation at War timeline is what TNG should have been all along. It is only when Picard decides to interfere and in established history by sending the Enterprise C back, changing the lives and destinies of trillions in the process, that the good timeline is created, which is in effect the wrong one. Well, Matthew, thank you very much for your comments. And I, yeah, this, which is the right timeline. Very interesting. These, these things get very complicated. I think, Matthew, you need to draw a diagram for us because I was trying to follow. But, you know, when you talk about timelines, like which one existed before, which one was changed, which one was erased, I mean, it all gets a little complicated. Justin, yeah. you will note that uh, Matthew has says that it was answered by Joe, which is me. So that that needs no more explanation. Well, then you need to draw me a diagram. Okay, Okay, sure. No worries. (laughs) Yeah, I was just like, I have to go back and listen to what I said, but I wouldn't really take my response as kind of canon or gospel. Because when it comes to Star Trek science, head canon works a lot of the time. And whatever you decide to make up is the best explanation. Yeah, I mean, we've never seen the temporal mechanics class at Starfleet Academy, so we don't know how they explain it, how they make sense of it. You know, and one thing that I noticed uh, in reading these comments also on the Babel Conference and on Twitter was interesting because I think it was on Twitter when someone was like, I'd never listened to Standard Orbit and they are pretty awesome. And then they're going to start listening to Standard Orbit. So we, we really do love these crossover shows. Yeah, absolutely. I had never listened to Standard Orbit either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, but remember, I'm new, like very, very, very new to the whole Trek FM and You got some catching up a uh, few hundred Standard Orbit episodes. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of decades, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to Earl Grey 290, which is Undercover Missions with our guest, Christos Giannaris. Yeah. So, so we had a great time on that episode. And Paloma Bennett says the Mintakins are called proto-Vulcans because they are also super logical and not just because of their ears. So yeah, we did talk about who watches the Watchers and those proto-Vulcans on Mintaka 3. And I think we focused on the ears and not so much their logic. But yeah, they are very Vulcan-like in that way, aren't they, Joe? Yes, that's a point we never um, kind of happened upon, is it? That they're also very yeah. logical, which is a really good so, point. So. Yeah, so, so apparently if you're on a planet that leads you to have pointed ears, it can also lead you to be really logical. I don't know. It's kind of a cause and effect. Do pointy ears cause you to be logical? Or is it your logic causes your ears to go pointy? Yeah. Yes, I'd like to see the correlation coefficient with that. (laughs) Probably isn't one, Amy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, when we find all those intelligent species out there in the universe, we can do a study on that. Kimberly Lawler says, fun episode and Christos Gennaris was a great guest uh, he was a great guest i totally agree oh yeah um, i love christos i liked how the discussion of undercover missions veered off into a discussion of the prime directive 
I think it's a very harsh rule that makes may, might make sense in terms of not sharing advanced technology, but clashes strongly with humanitarianism. Two of Picard's worst moments, I think, were in Symbiosis and Homeward, when he wouldn't act to save people. I was definitely on Beverly's side in both cases, and even though she got in trouble in Who Watches the Watchers, she was right that some of the damage had already been done, so she should try to help. I did laugh at the idea of aliens visiting science fiction fans first. It reminded me of Independence Day and Galaxy Quest. Do you know what? Throughout that entire episode that we recorded, all I could think of was Galaxy Quest, and I don't know why I didn't didn't mention it. Because the, the ship that they're on, that the aliens create in Galaxy Quest, basically crashes it into the Galaxy Quest version of STLV into the parking lot. <laughs> it does, yeah. They're, they're at a convention. That's, that's pretty great. Which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks everyone for your Babel Conference feedback. We really appreciate it. Today on Earl Grey, we have a special guest, Clyde Kusatsu, who played Admiral Nakamura on three episodes of The Next Generation, The Measure of a Man, Phantasms, and All Good Things. Clyde, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. So let me just start out with the question, how did your career in acting start? Ah, okay. Um, I grew up in, ha- in ha- Honolulu, Hawaii. And um, back in the day... Um, in the 50s and Hawaii, basically, at one point, there was only one TV station, and that was CBS. And then another station would come in, and that became NBC. And then another station came back, and it was ABC. But these new stations had to fill in their airtime. So there was a lot of movies being played to fill up the airtime. And they they utilized the uh, Universal Film Library, the Warner Brothers Film Library, Columbia, MGM, and so I was exposed to uh, all the way from the Little Rascals to Mickey and Judy and the summer stock and let's do a show type of thing and dancing, singing and all that stuff. And as a kid, I'm going, wow, I think I'd like to do that. But of course, uh, growing up in a Japanese American uh, family uh, and the cultural attitudes at the time was like, no, 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 that's crazy. No, you don't want to do that. And, um, but it's still, Harvard that I, I was in um, was an all boys Episcopal prep school in Honolulu called Ialani School. It, it's now gone co-ed, but uh, there were uh, two private schools: Punahou, which is where Barack Obama graduated from, and then Ialani. And um, we, uh, I was involved in like band, and I was involved in the choir. And then, like my freshman year, the choir teacher said to me, "How would you like to be in the chorus of the choir?" Uh, of Guys and Dolls, the school musical. And I said, sure, because I never auditioned because I was too shy and too afraid to put myself out there and audition. But then I went in the back door, right? So you get involved with uh, the school production. And, and since we're an all-boys school, a lot of the girls came from Punahou. And a lot of the girls came from St. Andrew's Priory, Priory, which was the Episcopal girls' school. But it was the first time it was this mix. And there was a, just a different mix in doing the show. It was a whole different world there. And I, I really kind of loved it. And then I wound up doing a lot of the school plays and then uh, did a play with the University of Hawaii uh, Graduate School Lab. And, and you, you, you gravitate towards people that are interested in the arts, for example, and you hang out with them. Just as if you were a surfer, you hung out with a lot of the surfers and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I um, applied and I, I got accepted to Northwestern University, the theater program there. 
And so uh, I entered as freshman year in 1966. And um, prior to that, the summer before that, um, that same choir teacher had recommended me for uh, a role as a crown prince in The King and I. And it was the initial start of the summer stock for uh, professional summer stock in Honolulu brought by brought to the islands by a producer named Herb Rogers. And uh, it was like six shows and they would bring stars and then um, and fill it out with the local cast and, and everything. And um, I wound up, um, in fact, uh, this a friend of hers was the orchestrator and the conductor from, from New York, but also born in Hawaii. And uh, when he heard the name uh, Clyde Pitasso, he said, well, that's kind of weird. This weird sounding name, but, uh, and then later on, I said, yeah, he's not bad. And so I wound up doing the choir boy, I mean, the uh, King and I, and, and that starred Anne Blythe, who was a uh, MGM starlet from the late 40s and the 50s and to the 60s. And then I hung around as an apprentice for the, the remainder of the season and was exposed to all, I mean, I was one, literally that kid in the wings every night watching the action, listening to the music, and just scuttling around, handing props, picking up costumes, and doing all that stuff. And when I entered Northwestern, uh, I realized I wasn't the only one with that experience, because there were a whole bunch of kids who did summer stock on the East Coast. I mean, big-time summer stock. But so it was a grounding experience. And But it was a, kind of a pivotal moment, because that freshman year, I had a, I had a professor a uh, theater professor who, who uh, stopped me in the middle of the hallway one day and looked at me and says, why do you want to be an actor? There's only the King and I and Kiosk of the August Moon. How could you possibly make a living? And um, I didn't respond. I just took it in. Uh, a lot of times the, in the Asian culture, you don't respond back. You know, you just sort of, you sort of uh, take it in. And, but it was crushing. It was soul crushing. And uh, I went back to, to Honolulu for the summer and wound up working in a, a brewery um, on the night shift, like from four in the afternoon to 12 at night. And I, I just, in the course of that, it's like, you know what? You really want to do this. And when you go back your sophomore year, you're going to have to work 10 times harder to uh, get noticed and to take whatever opportunity you can. And then I, I went back with that attitude and auditioned for directing scenes, lab theater scenes and everything. And slowly I got recognized so that to make a long story short, in the three years at Northwestern, I became a working member of the uh, theater department, even though half the professors wouldn't cast me and the other half would. But those that didn't cast me uh, would always point me out as one of the working members within the department. And in between, I did summer stock in Michigan City, Indiana, Colorado, and all the roles that I played in my college career and uh, in summer stock were never Asian roles at all. I mean, I got a good basis of training in various character roles. And so the idea, even though I didn't realize at the time that I was uh, the only person of color in the department and that kind of thing, you never was really talked about. Uh, and then when I came to Los Angeles, in 1971, all of a sudden I became, quote, uh, Oriental. Now it's Asian American. And uh, it was almost like starting back on the ground floor again. But then I got involved in a, uh, a, a little theater called uh, East West Players, which is a, 
So now it's the longest uh, running Asian American theater in the United States. But at the time in 1971, 72, uh, it was being reconstituted. Uh, and the artistic director was an actor named Mako. And Mako, if you're familiar with films, uh, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for The Sand Pebbles in 1967 or 68, or maybe it was 66, and in which he played uh, Steve McQueen's uh, buddy. And um, through that, he became my mentor. And I, it was almost like relearning stuff about the Asian culture. But the whole premise of East-West Players was to demonstrate to the industry that we were more than just playing laundrymen or coolies or labor, uh, railroad road workers. And so we do like uh, Ibsen or Chekhov. Uh, at one point, we, there were four productions of uh, the Three Sisters going on in Los Angeles. Uh, East-West Players, the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, uh, and a couple of other theaters, but then the critics felt that our production was the superior one. But in that way, in, in those days, in Little Theater in, in uh, Hollywood, uh, casting directors would come out because there were reviewers in the theater, in the papers, and people did go to the theater based on the reviewers. And directors and writers as well went to look for talent. And in, in, in many ways, I think I benefited from that in being able to uh, get noticed. Uh, in fact, at one point, um, there were at that time not many Asian actors who were trained. And as a result, there was a casting going on where they cast because they, you looked the part and they said, well, we won't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll put in a, a dialogue with a, a, another voice in post. Um, but uh, it took me two years to break through after taking classes and everything. But finally, I, I did do it, and I, I scored my first uh, role in TV on a show called Kung Fu with David Parody. And uh, it was kind of a pivotal show because in the course of the three-year run, I wound up being cast in four different roles in four different episodes. And in the first episode I did, uh, it's called uh, uh, Sun and Cloud Shadow. Uh, I, I had... No, no billing, even though I had a great character. And, uh, but that led to another audition the following season. And as I went in, and I was going to read for a co-star part. And the producer saw me and said, oh, no, this is the guy I'm talking about. No, no, we, we don't, don't read for this one. Read for this guest star role. And that's how I booked my, my, second guest, my first guest star role uh, and started um, this climb up the ladder up and down another time sometimes the ladder stops at a certain plateau and you move forward and sometimes you take a side you know journey type of thing but i do remember one pivotal thing was one day i walked into the uh, office area and the casting director saw me and says oh there you are and he quickly grabbed my hand and marched me down the hall opened another door to some producer's office says this is the guy i told you about he can talk uh <laughs> it was like that was like amazing. And then I must tell you in that first guest star role uh, called The Arrogant Dragon, um, the director was great. Was a guy named Richard Lang, and I wound up uh, being cast by him in many episodes, not only that show, but other shows. But uh, his father, Walter Lang, was uh, one of the in-house directors at 20th, 20th Century Fox. In fact, I think he did The, the King and I. Uh, but anyway, um, 
we're, he directed me by saying, listen, I'll, I'm going to have the, the stand in, walk through the action. I want you to look through uh, the lens and see, see, this is what I'm getting at. So don't worry about anything else. I'm just getting this kind of POV of you. And then we did the rehearsal. And at the end of it, he said, um, uh, you know, uh, can you can you give an accent? Uh, we don't want you to sound too American. Now, at that time, the big thing was the L's and the R's, right? You know, rots of ruck, you know, that kind of a thing. And it was very stereotypic. And of course, instantly my dander went up, my, you know, the spine stiffened. But then I, I paused and I said, well, wait a minute. If David Carradine could find a dialect and dialogue the way he did, and I made a choice, and I, I and I, I utilized the stage diction I learned to to utilize on stage at Northwestern. So I just went Kwai Chang Ping, we the member of the Tong, in this kind of this stage diction, almost kind of with Queen's English in a way. And they said, "Yeah, that's it," because what they were looking for was something that sounded different. And you can give them either the stereotype, or you can take that leap of faith and give them something that they hadn't heard, but it's still different. And that was one of the first lessons I learned of how you can begin to change people's perception and not perpetuate the stereotypes that people expect you to. It's how you approach the role. It's the research you do, uh, the historical factors and everything. You can always find a factor like, oh, yeah, okay, when Perry came to Japan, there was a guy who was a student or he was a fisherman washed, but he was educated in New England, blah, blah, blah. And so it's not necessarily speaking with the broken pigeon English. So in that way, rather than being huffed and puffy about it and every labeling racism and everything, well, yeah, those things exist. But how can you as an individual surmount that and uh, you become the agent of change? You know, uh, so it was one of those things upon reflection now. Look, uh, yesterday was my birthday, the 13th. And uh, hey, thank you. Thank you. You know, and so, uh, you know, I, I turned uh, 71. So I can look at it with retrospect. And uh, so I've been so I would say I've been in front of the camera for 46 years now. And just a couple of days I did a guest spot on a, a new show called uh, Dirty John in the second season. And so it, it's all good. It's the best of both possible worlds. I still get to do what I dreamed of doing and, and practice it. You know, in the, several weeks ago, I was in Las Vegas uh, at my second invite to be part of the uh, creation Star Trek convention and everything. And that, that was a hoot as well. So it's, it, it's, um, it's, I'm, it's gratifying and, and I'm very blessed to be allowed to have this kind of career that I've had and be able to reach out. And so I'm very pleased to, um, you know, participate even in, in your podcast as well. Well, a couple of things that I just wanted to highlight, that is what you're saying about that perspective and, you know, changing, being an agent of change, I think is so important and very courageous of you to, you know, not give in. I mean, there's a lot of actors and, you know, there was that risk that they could have said, nope, we want it this way and you're out and bring in someone new, but that you gave them something different and that it worked. I mean, just that's, that's amazing and inspirational. If I may, Amy, uh, just uh, on, uh, uh, God can be very funny sometimes and has, has a uh, karma can be uh, different years later. 
uh, I was working uh, on a, uh, a, uh, a a film called Frisco Kid that Robert Aldrich directed, and I had worked with Bob uh, prior to that on the Choir Boys, and, and he invited me to be part of uh, the Frisco Kid with Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford uh, playing a railroad worker. And I did my research, and I bought pictures and everything, and I said, you know, Bob, uh, I don't want to wear that pigtail, you know, because here's some things that you see these miners, some of these miners and railroad workers didn't have the traditional coolie outfits and this and that. He said, okay, okay, okay. But because my role was not as large, I wasn't part of the uh, usual rehearsal. Bob liked to uh, spend a week rehearsing the whole movie, and then you head on to start shooting. And we began shooting in, in Greeley, Colorado, and I got to uh, the location, and we were in the field, Bob came up to me and said, uh, hey, look, I, I, I got to tell you, uh, the guy that uh, was play- reading your part did all the, the stupid L and the R thing, you know, lots of rock, to rock type of thing. And everybody's laughing. So, yeah, you know, you, you got to do that. All right. And I hated it. But I mean, I, I mean, he would say cut, cut. And but what it forced me to do was to find a way of honoring what needed to be done at the same time not falling into the really, you know, um, uh, bad or uh, disreputable associations with that. And I would just have to think back, you know, a lot of people, when they come, when immigrants, when they first come out, I mean, they're trying hard. So in many respects, I was able to succeed. And after that long day, he looked at me across the distance and he said, hey, they got rid of the queue, right? <laughs> That's when I learned. Yeah, I did. So it's it's not always perfect, but at the same time, some things that's not perfect, you get the opportunity to challenge. You don't know at the time, but instead of sulking and getting pissed off, you go, how can I work to better that? So I just just wanted to add that little story in. Clyde, I wanted to um, pick you up on a detail that you mentioned about how unusual your name is. I think you said a previous director had said your, your name was strange sounding. Obviously, Kusatsu is of... I'm assuming of Japanese origin, but um, the only instance I can get of the name Clyde um, has Scottish origins, interestingly. Um, the name Clyde was very popular in the US from like the 1930s onwards, um, and then kind of died out laterally, but it's had a bit of a revival recently. Um, and in Scotland, the, the name Clyde is basically the the largest river that runs through Glasgow, which is my home city. Um, and obviously, like before the 1930s, a lot of people from the United Kingdom and Europe kind of migrated across to the US. So I think um, your name, you're named after, like the, my hometown is Clyde Bank, the town on the banks of the Clyde. So, and that is your name also. So I think that must mean we are related in some way. So you are you're an honorary <laughs> Scottish person, perhaps? Well, lad, what could I tell you? The thing I learned one time, I think it was watching a, in, in a Harry Andrews yeah. film, and he played Sergeant, Sergeant Major. He says, could you the man that never can hear the pipes of Scotland? <laughs> nice. And, uh, and the other one is McTaggart, you got to kill Cotton Christian, don't you? That was actually pretty accurate. So it was like... That is so much better than Amy's attempt at a Scottish accent, which is abysmally offensive. So thank you, Clyde. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. This is another one. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a film called Tunes of Glory that had um, Alec Guinness and Sir John Mills. 
played uh, uh, army officers after the war. And, uh, and uh, it was, I had an opportunity to work with Sir John. Uh, we did the uh, two hour TV movie pilot for Dr. Strange back in uh, 78. And uh, it was one of those things that said, so uh, how did you, oh, well, you know, uh, Alec and I decided, uh, who would you like to play? Would you like to play Jock? Who would you like to play this part? And Alec said, yes, I'll play Jock. Can you play the other guy? And it was like, wow, really? Yes. It's so, you know, uh, collegial, that kind of a whole thing. And, and, and of course, the way the actors work in the UK and are trained and brought up is is totally different from us you know it's it's more about the the technique and uh the passion rather than the uh egocentric narcissistic thing that uh us actors are famous for <laughs> it's all about us no but when i was in scotland it was uh kind of nice that uh there were so many references to clyde all around glasgow that, that, you know? do you know what um the river clyde is famous for shipbuilding historically like the the qe2 was built on the clyde it's one of the most famous ah. um ships kind of still going across yeah. the ocean so um yeah clyde bank clyde view clyde vale there's lots of clydes just because of the name of the river and you're named after that in a way so well, it's better than because my mother had the choice between Carl and Clyde. So Clyde is much more um, conversational opening as we're having right now. Exactly. Yeah, that's so true. So we have some questions from um, our Facebook group group online, and one of them comes from Yvette Blackmon. Mm -hmm. And she asks, were you a Star Trek fan before you became Admiral Nakamura? Are you a Star Trek fan now? And did you know your character was peppered throughout the post-nemesis Star Trek novels? No, I didn't. That one I didn't. Oh, really? Um, but to answer the first question, as a freshman at Northwestern in 1966, the number one show to watch, appointment television, was Star Trek. First of all, it was in color, and that was, like, amazing, because a lot of times it was still... In 1966, we were still in the transitional phase between black and white and color. That's why NBC was famous for their peacock and the thing like the world is a wonderful place of color. And that's where Disney had a chance to uh, show all the color stuff. And uh, yeah, no, no, no. I was a big fan of Star Trek. You know, Kirk and Spock and Bones and Hura and the whole gang, you know. So it's like, uh, yeah. So then when I got, first of all, I had uh, years later uh, i had a call from my agent said um they're interested in knowing whether you'd be they want to bring you in but the first question is would you be willing to spend seven years in alien head head makeup and i went are you kidding no fine i don't care and it, it turned out to be the character of quark and oh uh, really wow. yeah but my my good friend armin shimmerman wound up getting it but that's great because for him, it was great. But then uh, Rick Berman, the producer, you know, was like, uh, later on, I went in for uh, Star Trek Next Generation. And he looked at me and went, sorry. And I went, hey, no worries. <laughs> and then it was, and I wound up reading for Nakamura. And, and then I got cast by Rick as Admiral Nakamura. And uh, to get fitted, the two or three days of fitting to get that costume right and everything. But let me tell you, getting on that set, when you put your finger or your right hand or to your chest going bridge, it was like a thrill. 
and then cut to being on the bridge. This is cool. Very, very cool. So uh, it was a thrill. And it's just a thrill to be part of the Star Trek franchise in some way or the other. You know, you never know. You never know how something like that all of a sudden becomes synonymous for a lot of people recognizing your work and everything. So that's cool. Hope that answers. Yeah, it. definitely, and I'll and I'll just add because I've read a lot of the novels. I think Nakamura has a role in six or seven different novels, even one that was, came out this year. So they're continuing to use the character. Oh yeah. wow, that's yeah. good to know. Maybe I'll maybe they'll bring him for <laughs> That would be cool. Love to see that. <laughs> Love to see what Nakamura is doing all those years later. Right? Yeah. Uh, Clyde, a yep. question from me. Um, so 30 years ago, The Measure of the Man um, debuted. Um, and I wanted to ask what your experience um, was like working on that and portraying a Starfleet Admiral for the first time. Um, measure of the Man. You know, the funny thing about it is, um, uh, years before, that, a few years before, I met Brent Spiner on a pilot we did for NBC um, with... Um, uh, I'm having a, a uh, who played Gomer Pyle uh, on Mayberry, and he had his own show. Uh, Jim, 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 Jim Neighbors. Jim Neighbors. That's it. Thank yeah. you very much. At sometimes <laughs> I'm going, oh boy, brain fart. Uh, yeah, Jim Neighbors. It was called Sprayberry in Paradise, and it took place in a hotel. And basically, it was Gomer in Hawaii, and Brent played the uh, the head. Uh, the head uh, concierge in the hotel. And it was also, um, um, who the gal was in uh, Friends, and uh, it kind of escapes me now, but, and it was her first sitcom. Anyway, we did it, and uh, it didn't go, thank God. And then I, I wind up working with Brett, and he's all painted gold and everything. And it was very cool. And then I heard he was like, Oh, having complaints like, oh my God, I hate doing this and this and that. And I ran into Brent and I went, seven years, babe. Big thing. Seven years. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're right. So every time I see him, sometimes I go, I said, yeah, yeah, let's, let's not go there. But we'll, we'll agree that the pilot, I mean, the pilot that we did was crap, you know, but that's fine. No, but uh, Measure of the Man, yeah. It was also, um, what was amazing was the cast was so welcoming. From Jonathan Frakes to uh, to uh, Patrick, and Patrick was such a gentleman, just incredible. It was almost like, thank you very much for doing this, and blah blah blah. And he took the time, I think, took the time to uh, maybe check out what your your career was and what you've done. And so there was this kind of a mutual respect from everyone. So it was kind of cool, very very cool. Yeah. And I mean, and you may be aware, but the measure of a man is often considered one of the very best episodes in, in Star Trek. So, I mean, you made your debut in a really great episode. Oh, really? Because I was very yeah. honored to be in the, the, the finale of the series, too. That's also a highly regarded one as well. Yeah. I think there's a common theme here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to bring you in for the best episodes. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm, I'm just kind of curious about, about something because, you know, you're in the measure of a man, which was in, in season two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that, that episode, well, I mean, I think there's something interesting about that episode, which is that what you see in the aired episode is 
you know, you you meet Picard on the the starbase and then come over to the Enterprise and you're you know talking with him and here's Commander Maddox and work on your Android and then you're kind of gone. There were a couple of deleted scenes that uh, that you were in that didn't uh, make it in. I, and I think we talked about it in a previous episode where you're talking to Picard on the view screen. Also, I think there's one in the hallway where you're talking about like serving on a, a common yeah. ship. So I think it's a shame that some of those other things didn't make it in for that episode. Wow. Well, thank you for reminding me about that. that. That's great to know. I, I didn't realize that. How did you get yeah. Did you see some of the outtakes? Is that it? Yeah, so when they put out the Blu-rays um, five or six years ago, they put on deleted scenes. In fact, for The Measure of a Man, they took the deleted scenes uh-huh. and they included that in an extended version. So you can see it on the Blu-ray as a longer version. So instead of the 45-minute version, it's like, I don't know, 56 minutes or something like that. It's 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 a good deal longer. And, and it has some of those deleted scenes that you're in as part of that kind of longer presentation. So Oh, well, I guess anyway. he's going to go to Amazon and make an order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, and it's and it's quite good uh, like that. And they have other deleted scenes from other episodes. But one of the things that I wanted to ask was, so they had you on that episode in season two, and then they brought you back uh, five years later um, in the episode Phantasms, which is a season seven episode. And you talked about all good things, the, the finale. So I mean, what was it like returning to that role like five years later? I'm just grateful that <laughs> I wasn't forgotten. <laughs> and uh, it was just grateful that... Uh, uh, to be brought as a recurring character back and then and honored and honored to be included in the finale and send off. Um, and I, I think Phantasms was directed by Patrick, if, I, if memory serves. Um, and it was uh, lovely to be, again, as, as, as if nothing changed, to be uh, greeted by Patrick going, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for doing this for us. And I wanted to say, are you kidding me? This is my pleasure, but thank you. So it makes for um, a very, not only pleasant, uh, creative uh, work environment, but it also is one where you know that you are respected and valued because a lot of times in television production, there's time is of the essence. And a lot of times there's no time. There's no time for this or that for someone to go. And so when someone says, hey, well done, or good let's move on or and then you know it's it's always been the measure that oh okay i'm doing my job and uh to me as an actor is uh to just keep working and uh the measure of an actor is the measure of how many times you get booked you know what i mean and part of the booking process is to what you bring to the set it's 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 almost a subliminal thing that people ask later on like hey how about this guy no what a pain in the ass he was before you want that or in uh, oh no hey yeah of course also it works kind of the other way too uh bob aldrich uh, you know bob was famous for like the dirty dozen and whatever happened to baby jane and there was an actor uh that he used on the choir boys who really played an uptight uh prick and uh he he was very high strong and i said to bob what i don't i don't get it and bob said yeah 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 i know he's an asshole but you know, if the character calls for an asshole, then I'll cast him as the asshole because then I know he's going to do the job and I don't have to spend my time away from directing and let him do his job because I know he's going to get the job as an asshole. And I was okay, I got that. So a lot of times what's interesting is very funny. Sometimes you see what you see on the screen, in the little screen and the big screen, is who that person is. 
which is interesting, I find. Right? That's that's kind of a secret thing. Many, many people say, oh, no, he can't be that. You know, he, he, he must be. Usually the thinking is, he's such a villain. He must be really a nice guy deep in heart. And a lot of times it's, no, no, he's a bit of a shit. But that's all right. It works. Let's move on. So a little bit, a question on the production side, again, from a listener, Kimberly Lawler. She was wondering when you play Mm -hmm. a character that only shows up on the view screen, how is that different? So like, do you get to read your lines with the other people or is it filmed completely separately? Oh, it's filmed separately unless someone is there on the set who is that character, then he'll, as a a, uh, courtesy, read with you but for the most part um if it's uh, you're doing that kind of a screen thing it's going to be the script supervisor doing that um i, w- I will say this to add the thing when you're talking about uh, behind the scenes and the set and everything like that um around the time that this this, this whole star trek uh, series got re rejiggered and into production uh the makeup departments for many uh shows and studios were almost falling off because there was no um used to be that makeup would be handled by certain families like uh the dawn family had mgm or the westmores had universal warner brothers and paramount and it was a familial kind of thing but as as the business developed and everything the uh the journeyman quality and the artistic quality of your craftspeople kind of dropped a little bit but star trek kind of resurrected and gave an opportunity for Mike Westmore to pass on his knowledge and train a whole new cadre of younger makeup artists, especially in prosthetics and everything like that. So that by the time that the whole, all the seasons wrapped, there was a kind of a a, a mini school, craft school happening with makeup. And and it's through Mike Westmore's work and uh, vision that the craft of makeup uh, was uh, rejuvenated and uh, given a boost to keep on moving forward. And I think I think there's another fourth generation of Westmores or makeup artists as well. But uh, in fact, when I when I had my first Kung Fu episode, the uh, our makeup guy was Frank Westmore, a bit of a flamboyant part of the family. But and he wrote a book. But it's I I guess I've been so long at the fair that I've had the opportunity to work towards the end of a certain era and the beginning of another era. So it, it's all remarkable to me. I'm just, it's like I'm the time traveler. Every decade, what changes is the players, but there's still a blonde, a brunette, a leading guy, a hunk, and a brainiac type of thing. And, and the stereotypes in that respect, uh, prototypes still exist, but they're just different players and different faces, you know? So it's an interesting kind of a, kind of a scene. Sometimes, I hope that answered the question regarding the the uh, AI. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it must be interesting though when you're doing something, you know, it's going to be on a view screen. Someone else is going to be reacting to it, and you're doing it with the the script supervisor. I mean, does that make it more more difficult to to get into the feeling that you need because you're you're not playing off of the actor doing the who would be responding to your lines? Ah, uh, well, it, it kind of works two ways. Uh, in, in many respects. It, before the age of um, like screens, I mean, if you were doing a scene on the phone, talking to somebody else, you wouldn't necessarily need that other real character to do it. Or 
there's a point where it gets so real that um, I remember working with, uh, we were doing looping for uh, Crazy Like a Fox, and Jane Kazmarek had some looping because we guest starred on, on the pilot of Crazy Like a Fox, but she said, I gotta go now, guys, because she was playing the wife to Robert De Niro in this film, and De Niro is having an affair with uh, Meryl Streep, and De Niro's calling her character from uh, Union Station or uh, from the train station, and she had to be home to have the, the scene with uh, De Niro. <laughs> and we all went, wow, really? And the next time that kind of a thing happened, I remember I was doing In the Line of Fire with, uh, with uh, Clint Eastwood and uh, John Malkovich. And all of a sudden, I would, on the way to makeup, I'd see Malkovich's uh, trailer just shaking a little bit. And it turned out what he was doing was when Clint and he, his character, were having a phone call, they were having a co-phone call with each other. So that really kind of added to the uh, the reality of, of the scene. If you ever see the movie, there's a kind of a different kind of a feeling because it's really happening. They're, they're really, even though they're not seeing each other, they're on the phone with each other. So a lot of times, you know, it, it's it's so interesting. Sometimes when you're, for example, if you're doing a scene where you're the judge, when you start off the master, you're included. But then after the master is shot, everything goes in front of the judge, prosecutor, defense, the observers, the witnesses. So you know <clears throat> at the end of the day, they're going to turn around to get the close-up of the judge. So sometimes an actor, if they're not too up on their game, will just play around and then feel the pressure later on when they have to do it. And then they say, oh, I hate being a judge because they always wait for me for the last to get the shot. Or you can choose to use each take and each scene that you do as your rehearsal. Make the little notes, keep it there so you know that people are going to drop off. They're not going to be able to be there to read with you off camera. So if you stay focused, connected, you, you are having your rehearsal with all the players involved. So that at the end, instead of like, you know the crew wants to go home. So maybe at the max you do three takes and then you're home and everybody's appreciative of it. But also what you should be appreciative of what I've learned is that you're functioning as the actor, you're staying focused, you're staying active, and you're doing the work, and which is what it's all important about it. You're the professional. You're being trained to do all that. You shouldn't be told what to do, you know? Yeah. Clyde, you'd mentioned the makeup process, and I was reading recently about the the Westmore family legacy in Hollywood. And it just sounds like a, a phenomenal thing to be a part of. Yeah. But I was reading also that, um, the makeup for Admiral, Admiral Nakamura, he was intended to be a peer of Captain Picard. So they had to age you. So they put you in older makeup so that you looked more of the age of Patrick Stewart. Can you oh, yeah. tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 absolutely. A lot of times, um, and then I guess I've been blessed with, uh, Good complexion, good skin, <clears throat> not too much wrinkles, but that's the problem because it it, it hinders uh, the makeup. And but Mike Michael was very uh, prescient about it. He he understood. So it did take a little longer. What seems like a simple thing, because we didn't put a lot of prosthetics or anything on to to age me, but it was just with the shading and everything like that. So uh one you you get the mustache you get the, the white in the hair and, and the mustache and the hair and then it's just slowly building with light and shadow around the eyes and everything 
so that by the by the end of the hour hour and a half, it, it was very possible that Patrick and I were uh, classmates in the space academy. So it was one of those things where, to me, because I I, I I remember doing a a Blake Edwards uh, movie, and then I was let go because they could not age me, and because and they they cast somebody who was older. Because I saw a conversation with the makeup guy that they had on the show, and he was just like shaking his head. And you know, you can piss and moan, but if he was the professional he was supposed to be, it wouldn't matter. He'd be able to age you. You know, you wouldn't be able to say that I can't do that. And so it's like, in that sense, that's why I I I feel that Mike Westmore was really integral in changing the whole mindset of makeup again re-injecting that professional, uh, professionalism and craftsmanship that uh, is needed now. I mean, I, rem- I remember one of my early TV movies, Rick Baker, who's like the top guy in his line, uh, helped out um, uh, John Corey, our director, to, uh, to age Nobu McCarthy. Uh, and it was simple things, not a heavy kind of a thing. It was just, just the way you did the shading and, and this and that and finding that look. So you didn't have to stay the whole time. But um, any artist who's a makeup person worth his salt is able to do that, make magic out of nothing, so to speak. Yeah, and that's and that's really interesting because I I hadn't really thought about it before, but but you're right. When you see Nakamura, even in the first appearance, he's he's got like you know white hair and and looks older than you were at the time. I I just hadn't even really thought about that. I I've been, I, I was kind of, I, this is funny. I, I was kind of lucky that. Um, early in my career, like that second episode, the first guest star I did on Kung Fu, for example, said, well, it's got to be older. So they just put a little gray on the side of my hair and uh, a little gray in the mustache. And for the longest time, I think I was considered indeterminate as to age. So even in my 60s, I was being sent out for characters in their 40s and 50s, you know. But in this age of IMDb, I think these days it kind of hits the wall. And now I said, nah, we can't bring him in because it's the people will probably look up the IMDb and say, hey, the dude is really old. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so interesting. So I'm just curious. So you were on the three episodes of The Next Generation. Was there like a, a favorite one that you participated in? I got to say the first one, Measure of the Man, because it gave an opportunity to have um, to establish uh, not only the introduction, but also to establish a relationship between Picard and Nakamura and uh, provide and also an opportunity, you know, because a lot of times uh, when they have an Asian character, it's sort of the, the character is kind of stiff, you know, there's nothing kind of natural about it. It's always either officious or kind of um, straight face, poker faced and everything like that. There's no life. I mean, it fulfills the function of the character, but there's no kind of life and it's always been my thing as an actor to like yeah i mean i remember there were a lot of um, asian uh people in, in asian americans who when they have an opportunity would come up to me and said you know thank you thank you for making us not have to be embarrassed with how you portray a character because they're used to so many guys who bring gals who did it wrong that like uh uh-huh. It kind of it, it brings you makes them squirm. So to me, it is doubly important that you portray in a sort of an ethically and authentic way 
that when you're portraying a character, it's a way to break down stereotypes that people have towards another culture or another uh, racial group. You know, um, I had an opportunity. I used to do uh, kind of a John Wayne kind of imitate. Well, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you badly. And I, I would do it between shots, like I was doing a, uh, a two-hour magnum, and I was just to break the attention. Well, boys, we're losing the thumb. The black tower is not going to be too happy. We've got to burn some film. And it sparked something that a year later, they created a character of a detective, uh, Honolulu, uh, a police detective, who uh, Gordon Katsumoto, who drove Tom Magnum nuts because of John Wayneism. And in many respects, that broke a lot of stereotypes that people held about Asians. Because then people would come up to me and say, hey, you're the dude that does a John Wayne, huh? Wow, cool. And uh, it, it's that kind of, uh, what do you call it, feedback you get, which if we can break it down, instead of making shaming people to like another person and be respectful, but understanding that, hey, there is that quality, you know, you can do it. It's sort of like when I did a, the, uh, my first Archie Bunker, I mean, the All in the Family, where I was a Rev, Reverend Chong, and they had this kind of, you know, Reverend Ching, I go Chong, Reverend Chang, I go Chong. And Archie Bunker go, whatever. And so at the end of the thing, I had the one final scene. I said, no, that's not right, Mr. Binker. And he said, Bunker. And I went, whatever. So throwing it back, but being able to find the way of doing it within the system without having to throw a tantrum, you know, or making a big... Uh, putting the mind—I call it the putting the minority chip on your shoulder type of situation—and how to utilize a, a dire situation and how to make the best of it type of thing, you know. Yeah. So, so I have a question. Since I think we've talked about some other roles you've had outside of of Star Trek, so yeah. um, one of my favorite shows besides Star Trek is Mash, and I know you had some appearances on that show. Uh, yeah. Tell us what that experience was like. Oh, you know, back in the day, you could be in multiple episodes in the course of a series life. And somehow that's been lost today because the network says, no, the audience is not going to be able to know the difference. And they'll, if he's in another role, he says, no, no, that's that guy. And it's really not true, but that's the whole network practice these days. So match was another show that uh, afforded me a, a class in being taught as an actor. And, the first episode I ever did uh, on MASH was I was cast as Quan Duk Lin, who was the bartender at the officers club. But rather than I had the opportunity, hey, I'm speaking like this. My name is Quan, Quan Duck. How are you? So it was an opportunity to break a stereotype. And um, that was cool. And then I, I did another episode called uh, Henry's in Love as that character. And then a few years later, there was a character of... Uh, a sergeant who Asian American soldier who was like a hero, but constantly putting himself in the line of fire and danger. And uh, they have to bring the psychiatrist come in to say what's wrong. And basically the diagnosis is that she feels such shame and conflict having to fight against the enemy who looks like him. He wants to work extra hard to dispel that. So Sydney and gives me a post-hypnotic suggestion that every time I'm thinking those self-destructive thoughts, my wrists would move. But it was the uh, Goodbye Cruel World, it was called. And I was, my character was Sergeant Michael Yee. 
And there was another opportunity where that character worked with basically every actor who was the regulars on the show. And it got to provide the other viewpoint for what it would be like in a war situation in Asia with an Asian-American fighting an Asian enemy. And I think it was one of the first uh, shows, episodes written that was able to expose the public to that kind of conflict. Because it's rarely that you see that kind of conflict or that kind of uh, thing being exposed. And the other one I did in 82 was a thing called Joker as well, where I, I was just another doc who came in to uh, replace uh, Winchester uh, to um, do the work and observe all of those people like uh, Hawkeye pulling all kinds of practical jokes on them. But it, again, it was one of those things that I would, you know, pinch myself and say to myself, I am working on an iconic series. How great is that? How fortunate is that? Um, I mean, from the from the first episode as a as a bartender, I mean, Larry Gelbart, one of the great uh, writers of, of comedy, uh, was was one of the exact producers. So you're in very rarefied <clears throat> rarefied company, and and an opportunity to work with a lot of major talents. You know, and I'm I'm, I'm like a sponge; I absorb everything. So I'm able to have a co- cogent conversation with you all on this podcast. I mean, and, and, and it's great. Again, I mean, MASH is one of my favorite shows. I think those are memorable episodes and characters. And, you know, I was looking on IMDb and you have over 300 acting credits so that you remember so much detail about some of these roles that were a while ago is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, it keeps you in check. It's a good test. Otherwise, you're going, hmm, the clouds of Alzheimer's are looking at you. <laughs> yeah, I generally can't remember what happened last week. Never mind what I was doing 20, 30 years ago. So... Um, well done, Clyde. Uh, Clyde, I have to ask you about your hobbies outside of acting, but specifically, uh, I wondered if you could indulge me a little bit. We have something else in common, apart from both being Scottish now, because um, you've been kind of inducted into being Scottish as of this podcast. Um, but you're also the, the vice president of SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and you're the vice president um, in LA. Um, I am a high school physics teacher and I'm a union rep um, for one of the largest um, teaching unions in Scotland. Um, And we work hard to ensure that teachers' rights are respected and preserved and also um, that teachers have a safe working environment to be in. So I just wanted to, if you could comment on the importance of your work with um, SAG, please. Well, um I got involved um, in union work because in 2008, at that time in 2008, uh, the Actors Unions, uh, Screen Actors Guild, and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists were two separate entities uh, spending decades trying to merge themselves into one. But the problem was, in the end, it just pitted one against the other, and it was a, 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 a rapid down were a trend in, uh, in negotiating the contracts. And it was kind of stupid. It's a, the logical thing is this should be merged into one. Like British equity was very large and, and was one. You know, it represented everybody. Um, so at a certain point, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the leadership in Green Actors Guild was so crazy that they went down a pathway that they basically had no plan B. 
So a, a group of us got together and uh, we formed uh, a movement called Unite for Strength, in which our uh, purpose and focus was to merge the unions. And slowly, uh, over a course of a couple of years, we're able to um, gather enough uh, uh, leadership roles and, 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 and board seats to help bring about the merger of it. So I was involved. So I've been involved now for 11 years. And in, you know, Mahatma Gandhi says, uh, if by finding purpose in your life, you be of service to others. And I find that because of my lengthy career, I was also by being a, a uh, union um, leader, able to provide that background too and support and give work. All the work we do though is all voluntary. We don't get paid for these positions. And uh, it is to ensure that the union is strong, the, the contracts are better, to uh, address the new, new industry w uh, way because now, as you all realize that the whole business is going through a, a tremendous disruption and the way people get their content now is on streaming high budget uh, or internet streaming video and it impacts everyone it impacts every country and uh, manner and, and marketplace so um when i can i've been serving on some negotiating committees and everything and i find that it's very purposeful to be of service that way so that there's going to be there will be a stronger uh organization for the those that are coming up in the ranks and it's and it's it's a constant thing because the um the greater um uh multinational corporations uh are in control and their whole idea is they're not interested in long-term re returns uh a la for example they're not waiting to willing to wait five years to see that ncis will become the cash cow it has become they rather see the, the uh, returns in the short, every quarterly returns. And so that's the whole thing. It's not about building, it's about immediate and then um, ensuring that it can still generate and monetize. And it's really, but, you know, nothing's changed since when they had the Nickelodeons or, or on the radio when you're selling, you know, the Lux family hour or the Colgate family hour on radio or, um, you know, and, and different corporations, GE presents this or GE theater or to Playhouse 90. Everything is about selling product and that's what funds um, content and whether we, we like it or not, you know. So Clyde, tell us about any current or upcoming work you'd like to let our listeners know about. Oh, um, you know, I, I just, uh, in fact, uh, I've just been cast as uh, Dr. Simmons, the psychiatrist in the second season of Dirty John, which is uh, for USA Cable, and it's got Amanda Peet and Christian Slater, based on a true uh, crime story that was in the 80s uh, on the Betty Broderick story, a woman who went kind of uh, uh, postal because of her divorce from her husband and uh, could not accept the divorce and then wound up breaking into her ex-husband's uh, home, killing him and his new wife while they were in bed. And it's a subsequent thing about uh, her life and her decline. It, it previously was done before, but this is based on the Dirty John uh, 
premise that was on for a uh, first season last year and now it's the second season. So I just uh, did my first episode this past Thursday. And prior to that, uh, did do a streaming video web episode series called Docs, D-O-X-X-E-D, uh, where uh, this gal, by a slip of the tongue, winds up losing almost everything and being called a racist and she's Asian. But because of her slip of the tongue, it's how quickly that slip spreads uh, via social media and how people's lives are upended. So Eve Gordon and I play her parents. And then prior to that, you know, I did Designated Survivor, and, uh, Madam Secretary. So still in the game, still going out on auditions and stuff, you know, but uh, it's, it's good. And I'm very one of the few people that's fortunate because our unions have uh, defined benefits plans. So I've activated my pensions and I've got, uh, you know, health coverage. So those are the things that are uh, big problems for many people in working uh, America today in the world, actually. So uh, and that's another reason for being involved in the union to, to make, make sure that those benefits uh, are uh, still perpetuated and that are honored because it's really a race to the bottom in many respects, you know. We don't want to be like Uber and Lyft drivers, you know, at the mercy of the uh, corporate parent. Yeah. Well, and, and we're so glad that you're keeping busy with work, you know, that you're still getting auditions and still doing work and there's things to look forward to to see you in. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've just asked, added um, two new shows to, to my watch list, Doxed <laughs> and Dirty John. So All right. not that I don't watch enough on TV. So, but since you recommended it, Clyde, I can't, but not watch it. We okay. put it to the top of the list, of course. Absolutely. Right, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. All right. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us on Earl Grey. We really enjoyed having you on the show. Okay. Thank you very much. So wonderful to hear about uh, just your life in general. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think there's... Yes. Yeah. All right. Cool. It was great to talk to you today, and I'm so glad that you're now Scottish. So you can now say that you're Japanese-American Scottish. Uh, oh, that's a thing. Well, the funny thing is when you see some Asian people that live in the UK, and it's like, wow, they, you know, I remember doing, uh, we were shooting Shanghai Surprise in London, and a lot of the extras, because it's supposed to be Shanghai, but the Asians were going, and I go up and say, hey, how are you? And wh where are you from? Hey, well, my mom and dad, they're from Kowloon, you know, but I'm here in London. Yeah, yeah. That's going. That's mm. cool. You see an Asian face with that kind of uh, accent. It's, it's great. It's fascinating because no matter what someone's background, if they've been born somewhere and grow up somewhere, they have the accent of that place. It's, it's oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So, so thanks again for being on the show. Sure. Wow, guys, what a great interview. I was so impressed and so glad that he shared so much. One thing that I really liked was when he was talking about how his teacher encouraged him at the very beginning to go and try out for Guys and Dolls. And I was like, you know what? I wonder if that teacher even knew what he or she did, you know, for Clyde and what that launched him into this amazing career. I just, that was so awesome to hear. And, and I mean, it's amazing, like, because I think we tend to ask that question, like, how did your career in acting, directing, whatever start? And the answer is always super interesting, because someone just starts out, they're growing up, and they're like, ooh, I want to do that. And they just like, like, step by step by step. And he just like kept going along. And now he's had this 
super long career and he's still busy and had over 300 roles, which is incredible. Yeah. And I loved how, Joe, you just welcomed him right into the Scottish community and made that connection. That was so funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, Amy. Um, there was There's a thing about Scotland and its people. Um, and it doesn't matter where you are from in the world, that if you want to say you're Scottish, um, you kind of can. Um, you don't really have to live here. If you kind of identify with the kind of the Scottish way of life, then that's okay by us because we are super welcoming as a as a country of people. But I really liked um, that Clyde was just so open and friendly and easy to talk to. Um, yeah, no matter what questions we threw at him, he was just like, had answers that came off the top of his head, which is something I cannot do. You'd have to give me the question and then I'd have to spend an hour researching it and then come back with an answer. Yeah, so, and yeah, I should say, like on these good. interviews, we don't give the questions in advance or anything like that. No. It's just, you know, however they answer in the moment. And he had, I mean, I felt like we could have talked for hours because I'm sure he has so many stories about all of his roles over the years. So it was just fantastic. And hope listeners really enjoyed it, too. Yeah, it was really great listeners. You had a lot of good questions. Sorry, we didn't get to all of them, but they were great. So thank you, mm -hmm. listeners. <laughs> yeah, that does yeah, it. Definitely. All right. Well, Justin, what are we going to be doing next week? Yeah, so we're going to be continuing our series of deleted scenes. So I know last time we talked about some from season three. We're going to talk about some from season four from the Blu-ray. I know in the past we've done some like from Trek Core, but had some issues with Trek Core always being up for listeners to see that. So we're just going to go from the Blu-ray from now on. So, um, and I need to take a look at how many there are for season four. But anyway, just go ahead and uh, and take a look at the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray for season four, because that's what we'll be talking about next week. Well, it's been so much fun talking with Admiral Nakamura himself, Clyde Kusatsu, today. But that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here is what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see. Is this another time travel thing? No, I was, I was going to say no time travel for me as long as Jellicoe doesn't come into this. Sure. Okay, that's, we'll make okay. that deal then. Awesome. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Literary Treks. And, you know, the, the stakes are, are really big. You know, we'll, we'll get there, but, you know, this Borg ship threatens Earth and all this kind of stuff. And it just feels like it's, it's a lot of really comic booky, over-the-top stuff that doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense. <laughs> Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. And Next Gen Arriving was, was this sort of, wow, wow, this is, looks incredible. I know when we look at sort of first season Next Gen now, what we're going is, wow, this is really slow and stagey. But in fact, it was, it was incredible. It was absolutely um, game-changing. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Only because I was watching little bits of Emissary recently is that he would see himself wearing that awful purple swimsuit and think, oh, God, I can't wear that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my 
oh every, every time I see it, I'm like, whoa, I'm really glad I'm not wearing 24th century clothing. <laughs> if you wanted me to murder an entire society, fine. <laughs> but I'm not wearing that bathing suit. Too revealing. Oh. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> that's funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review that helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. So Amy, where can people contact you when you're not dreaming of being an admiral on the Enterprise D? taking a tour (laughs) well when i'm not doing that you can find me on twitter at miss amy nelson and i am there on oh you know what i'm also here on the network (laughs) yes you are (laughs) i'm so sorry oh my gosh i co-host the edge with patrick devlin and that is about star trek discovery oh my gosh how could i forget patrick listens to this he's not going to be happy you forgot (laughs) oh my gosh love you patrick um but yeah right there in the babel conference so joe where can people contact you when you're not inducting everyone into the scottish community what do you mean? Everybody, like, I'm very selective about the people. Uh, and, yeah, I don't think we're um, part of it because our names don't have Scottish origins, maybe. I don't know. Well, now <laughs> that I know, know that I can, anyone can just claim <laughs> to be Scottish, I now am because you know I love you and you and so. Amy, you will be inducted into that community when you like Jaffa Cakes. Uh-oh. <laughs> but remember, I said that Jaffa Cakes aren't typically Scottish, so and she didn't like them, so that's a good thing. You didn't oh, like the right, non-Scottish right, thing. Fine. She liked everything else that was Scottish. So I think, Amy, I've already used my quota of people to be inducted into Scottishness um, for today. So perhaps in the very near future, you will be the next to be inducted. Okay. For your love Fingers of, crossed. For your love of iron brew. Um, <laughs> iron brew. Iron <laughs> brew, yeah. Um, what were they? I can't even remember. Snowballs, snowballs, yeah. and yes. shortbread. Yes, yes, of course. Classics. I can't even remember the name of my own delicacies. So when I'm not doing that, you can get me on Twitter at joeyjoe77uk. You can email me, joepodcasts at gmail.com, or you can get me on the Babel Conference. And Justin, where can people get you when you're not in awe of Clyde Kasatsu's over 300 IMDb credits? I am very much in awe of that since I currently have zero. <laughs> so, Me too. <laughs> There's still maybe time. 
maybe one day there's still time. Uh, but yeah, when I'm not in awe of that, which I am, uh, you can find me elsewhere on the network co-hosting The Line. That's our Star Trek Picard podcast with my friends Chrissy DeClerc Salagi and Brandon Shamatala. So currently, since the show's not going to air until sometime in 2020, we've been talking about the character Picard and things leading up to the show. And then once it airs, we'll be talking about each episode shortly after it airs. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. I did finish my TNG rewatch a while ago, but now I'm doing a Voyager rewatch, starting from Scorpion forward to uh, get more of a sense of Seven of Nine's character. Of course, I've seen it many times, but it's just interesting to look at it through that lens. So that's what I'm doing right now and tweeting about it a little bit. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Trebuzio, Jim McMahon, Joe Keegan, and me, Justin Ozer. Thank you for supporting Trek FM, and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Captain, Commander Maddox is here to do some work on your android. Please take care of him. Welcome to being Scottish, Clyde. Great joy and gratitude.